and welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM or one of our wonderful and very appreciated community radio sponsors across the country, syndicates across the country, not really sponsors, mm. technically, uh, sitting here in studio uh, as usual, gladly, very gladly to have Stefan Hostetter here uh, as my co-host again this week. How you doing? And actually in the studio. It's very, it's very lonely being here on my own. I can see that. Uh, and uh, this week, speaking of loneliness, we are also uh, very much uh, uh, blessed to have another live human being inside, uh, and not just a floating voice on the phone for us, as despite the fact that it might be for you. Uh, we're going to be speaking to, in the first part of the program today, uh, the executive director of Number 9 Contemporary Art and Environment, which is Andrew Davies. Welcome to the program. Uh, thanks. It's great to be here. So we're going to uh, talk to you a little bit about a lot of the work that you've been doing, but just for the sake of a bit of background, uh, with the number nine uh, contemporary art environment uh, center, would I call it? Well, we're actually, you know, an art, just art organization, just number nine. It's actually right. number nine contemporary art in the environment is our full title. Yeah. I'm so used to I'm so used to reading official titles that just saying number nine seems like cheating to me. But okay, <laughs> it's fun. It's easy. I, we, one of the reasons we have that name is it's just easy to remember. All right. So number nine, yeah. uh, some of you've uh, pr- before coming back to Toronto and getting involved with this, uh, you've uh, been traveling the world involved with projects all over Canada, and the United States, um, and uh, have been involved in some fairly major uh, public art projects here in Toronto since returning uh, from your world tour as well, including uh, uh, some pieces at St. Mike's Hospital here in Toronto, uh, part of the uh, Gardner Expressway Gateway Project, the NXT, uh, and most recently part of the Pan Am Aquatic Center. Uh, and you are now the executive director for number nine. And I would like you to to do a better job than me explaining what number nine is. Sure. So number nine is a nonprofit charitable arts organization that utilizes the power of art and design to bring awareness to environmental issues. So uh, we create ideas and work with artists and raise the funds and get all the permissions and then implement the project and work with the artists to uh, inform the audience as to some of their ideas around the projects. And uh, sometimes we use them as urban uh, acupuncture where we'll like we did a project on the Don River so we'll do the bring people down there and we'll bring school groups and then we'll show them the artwork and they'll find out what's going on with the river and why we need to be sort of focused on it concerned about it. So I like the, the example that you used there as first. Uh, is your phrasing was uh, acupuncture? Urban acupuncture. Urban acupuncture. Yeah, yeah. Can, I, I, I feel like I know what you meant there, but can you unpack that a little bit more? Well, what it's exactly just, is happening? So nobody's going to go to the Don River on a field trip because it's kind of smelly and dirty and like, uh, you know, it's, it's actually improving now. I mean, there's uh, actually the Pan Am Path did a great job of focusing on the aspect of like, this is a great asset and we can, you know, access our ravine systems. But prior to that, you know, this was back in 2010. Uh, what happens is when there's rain, storm runoff, it mixes with our – sometimes with our sewage. is not a very nice thing. <laughs> and sometimes it all ends up in Lake Ontario. And so one of the things we did is we worked with this artist group, BGL, who actually just represented Canada at the Venice Biennial this year. So their, their career has sort of taken off. And they did this uh, very large life ring, and they had this mini cruise ship that was we anchored in the Don River for three months. I mean, all of this requires permission from various different organizations. And uh, so it was very exciting, kind of fun. And uh, so we brought school groups down there, and they saw this artwork. And then they actually got to make their own clay uh, sort of stewards of the Don. So they get involved with making clay. And the idea of creativity mixing with environmental ideas and uh, art and uh, thinking about how we can all work together 
to make things better. Yeah. So I, I want to get into the um, some of the education programs you've been working with the yep. TDSB here in Toronto, uh, the Toronto Dis- District School Board uh, for the non on uh, non Torontonians uh, listening. Um, which is uh, related to the uh, imagining my sustainable city uh, in, in just one second. But I have one one question for you now because uh, you uh, before we get there, which is that you've been uh, moving around quite a bit. And fair or not, it is said that uh, uh, people in Toronto sort of are uh, people who live in a nice city who don't appreciate it. Which is that everybody is so busy. There's a, it's very sort of businessy here. Um, there's a lot of corporate. Um, and so people are racing a by and a lot of the art and a lot of the natural environment that we see is frequently out to the si- side of uh, either a car window or a cab or, or a TTC. So, I mean, having moved around and having experience uh, all over, how uh, would you agree with that sentiment? Is that unfair? Do you think people in the city are are involved and invested? Is, is it hard to get people involved and invested in, in your projects as far as just Toronto? Well, I mean, we, we try and make our projects as accessible as, pro- as possible. The last project we did, which was Water's Edge, which was for Pan Am Games, was actually in Union Station and Pearson Airport. So the two largest, busiest transportation hubs in Canada, 250,000 people go through Union Station every day. Um, so we're actually making the artwork completely accessible. So people got to see museum quality work over the period of the Pan Am Games. We were talking people like Ed Bertinsky, Sebastian Salgado. And um, so that's one way, one strategy, because yeah, people are busy and they have busy lives and they have families and they have to make money and so forth. So to come across a great work of art as you're commuting is kind of a spectacular experience. And just to have that little moment and then to talk about environment, this this project was specifically focused on global freshwater issues, mm-hmm. so um, using really amazing work to talk about. Yeah, we have to we have to be considered. Uh, we have to start to consider fresh freshwater issues. Mm. As somebody in this city, whenever I see art, because okay, there will be projects popping up, yours and, and other people's occasionally. And I, and I find the most uh, the best experience of that is when you're not expecting it. When you when you're turning onto a street that you've been on a million times. And you know your brain's sort of half turned off, and you're looking at your cell phone, and then you see something that some and some sort of installation that somebody's done. And that's ah, that's such a great experience. Uh, let's talk. Let's dig more now into the um, the school project part of it here. So uh, you're going actually into classrooms. You're working with students. They're building models. They're so they're getting uh, sort of a basic uh, architecture uh, cl- uh, lesson. Uh, we're talking about like grade seven, uh, eight classrooms. Um, they're building these designs. They're working together. They're thinking about uh, issues of architecture and design, and then they're actually scaling this up and building uh, to not full scale, obviously, but scaled models and stuff like that. Uh, where did this project come from? Tell me more. Yeah, so it's a, I have a background in architecture. I did actually an undergraduate in fine arts and then a master's in, in architecture. And um, we were thinking about some of the experience of the public art projects, and we just felt like uh, the students would be so much more engaged if they had some background knowledge. And then thinking about how we could have the best impact uh, and then it, the idea of like getting involved with eco-literacy within the school system itself. So we actually partnered directly with the Toronto District School Board right from the very beginning, very top level, and worked with their teachers to sort of refine a program that we had. And in essence, it's bringing professionals into the classroom. And it's we basically create like a studio setting. And we take over the classroom sort of like gets transformed for an entire week into this studio. So the students are basically, they're doing science, they're doing math, they're doing art projects, they're doing things related to English and literature. Uh, but it's all through an integrated process of architecture, which is so fabulous to, to, to do those things. So they're, you know, like math is ratio and scale and uh, science is like heat loss and things of this nature. And we have like these nine pillars of sustainability that we train them. But the, yeah, they – 
basically do a neighborhood walk. They find an area that uh, is underutilized and maybe needs some help and and could be improved. And then they brainstorm together and they learn about urban planning and density and uh, growth and things like transportation, public transportation. It's really intense. And they go through this kind of arc where it's like they're <laughs> always like the second or third day. They're like, oh, my goodness, we're never going to get this done. <laughs> and um, and then, of course, we have these great, amazing teachers, uh, Elizabeth and Barb, who are architect trained, uh, trained architects. And they end up uh, coming up with ideas, so programs like farmers markets or recreation centers or improvements in parks or improving their own school ground. And then they build out uh, their ideas in a model, in a scaled model, as you mentioned. And then we even try and bring the counselor in at mm-hmm. the end of the week, and they present their ideas to their classmates and their peers and their, and their counselor. And uh, so they learn a little bit about governance. They learn about, like, if they do have an idea uh, later on in their, in their uh, life that they might want to uh, do something within their neighborhood. So it's not so much we would want to train all of these students to become architects or, or urban planners, although some of them really express some interest and they never knew about those things. Mm-hmm. But it's also about sort of creating uh, civic-minded citizens. So they have a base knowledge to know how to get involved with the built world around them. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes to things like new development going on in their neighborhood, I mean, who better to know about what's good for the neighborhood than the people that live in it? Yeah, I, I find I, I think that that would, for me was sort of the the, the most interesting part from my from my perspective uh, was I think that final component. I mean, the, the whole project sounds really interesting, and I, and I would have loved to have been a student and gotten to be able to involve. But sitting now as an adult, assessing this pro, uh, program as an adult, the the most interesting part to me is that final component. It is the you know we've done the you know you've you've done an art project and there you know there was probably a, a much larger uh, in, an educational component to it than just doing an art project for the sake of uh, art uh, would be because you have all this uh, as you said uh, ecological literacy and environmental literacy that's ber- being worked into it but the and here's how you actually make this happen and when you you know in a couple of years or I mean now if you wanted to but for a lot of these people you know as you go forward in your life know that here's the here's the person who's in your community who's there to listen to you and this is how you make this is how you take your ideas and make them into a reality and that for me that was the really the thing that, that got me talk, talk about the response to that part of the program how the counselors reacted how the how the students reacted to that sort of exchange well the counselors love coming into the classroom when they have the time and they love hearing from their constituents and the, i think yeah it's empowerment it's about through empowerment through knowledge which is you know really exciting and when you see these uh the lights turn on in these kids and they get excited and they really they really uh, uh you know uh have a lot of investment in their idea, so they all pool together. And we've had great testimony from teachers, like where students haven't been engaged at all, and all of a sudden they're superstars, and they're like because they've got great uh, spatial ability and they can work well with their hands, and you know, so a lot of these skills that might have gone un, uh, unrecognized are coming into the forefront, and these kids are becoming. And it's an interesting age, that grade seven, eight age. You know, it's like difficult age to be at, and uh, so when they certainly when they develop, when you see these kids have a voice all of a sudden and then they're getting recognition and then they're feeling empowered and then of course important person like a counselor comes in and they get to to tell them their idea like it's that's all very exciting for us and it's really mm-hmm. it's really uh, inspires us to keep going and to keep you know it really is makes it seem like you are making some kind of a uh, small difference yeah 
So that's really fabulous. Uh, I, I'd like to move on to the um, one of your other sort of current projects, which was uh, the work that you've been doing as part of the. Uh, it's just finished now. Unfortunately, we uh, weren't able to schedule in time to uh, to actually promote it while it was going on. But during the Pan American uh, 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 games and events that were going on here in the city of Toronto, that just wrapped up, it was from July 9th to August fifteenth. Uh, as you mentioned briefly earlier, there was the piece at Union Station and Pearson International Airport. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? The the project was called Water's Edge, um, and and I'd like to know. Um, specifically about the relationship to water and why that w- you felt that was such an important thing to highlight for this. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned this before. I mean, like uh, one of the big uh, interests that we had was to showcase this amazing work and it's front of as many people as we could during the Pan Am Games. And there was actually a water theme associated with the Pan Am Games. Uh, the issue of fresh water is something that uh, a lot of artists are grappling with. Um, you know, we, we're seeing droughts in California. We're seeing droughts even in, you know, in the Vancouver area. And so we, it's another one of those environmental things or re- natural resources that we take for granted and spe- specifically in Canada because we have so much of it. But we can actually be leaders of this because we are, you know, we do have so much fresh water and, and you know, it's often been said that because the Toronto's the largest population closest to the largest fresh water source, Lake Ontario. So um, all of that uh, was really important. And then these artists were so uh, dedicated, so passionate about their work and the quality of the work uh, is so amazing. We actually want to travel this show, so we're looking for another venue, either maybe here and maybe at West or maybe uh, in the United States, so we're currently exploring other possibilities. So any of our uh, central Canada stations or any of the West Coast stations, if you're listening, uh, you can contact uh, Andrew. He's, uh, he'd, like to get, he'd like you to hook him up. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it, it's a great show and it, it's 80 large-scale works and we'd like to travel it to the next venue so that more and more people can see this beautiful work, but also find out the, about the importance of uh, conservation around fresh water. Um, you know, uh, people have said that f- water is the next gold. I mean, as soon as you start to think about uh, the challenges of what happens when there is not enough fresh water, um, you know, it gets pretty scary pretty fast. So uh, I think the, the more proactive we can be on these subjects is like, and that's one of the reasons why we're working with artists because they tend to be visionaries. They tend to be the people that notice things first. And these artists have dedicated like years and years of their lives going around and uh, documenting what's going on. And now, you know, we're putting it together and, and, and putting some information around it. So it's really accessible for people to understand what it is they're trying to get mm-hmm. across. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, having done this now for, for a number of years and, and uh, for, by, by all accounts, uh, by all uh, indications, something you're going to be continuing to doing for quite some time, you seem very uh, invested in the topic and, and, uh, and seem like you get a lot out of it and, and you've been successful with what you've been doing. What, uh, how big, uh, obviously it does have an impact, but how, what role do you think that some of these things play, whether we're dealing with students or, or we're talking about the public projects? Um, you know, artists communicate ideas in a variety of ways and they, and they mean a variety of things to a variety of people. Um, but do you think that this is, uh, is sort of awareness raising or can these sort of things really sort of actually get people into a position where they take action on it? Is it, is it, is art limited, do you think, to, to consciousness raising or can it actually be used to, to actually change things? 
Well, I think that's a really good question. I mean, we, we talk about uh, the culture of sustainability. So if you look at the history of art, you, there's different movements that have occurred at different times and basically representing the thought that was going on in, in society at the time. Um, I think we're at the moment now where we're at uh, the, the culture of sustainability and uh, we want to promote the idea of thinking sustainably and, and then creating the value set that goes along with it. So, I mean, I used to work at the Museum of Modern Art and there's a whole whole movement around modern living and the influence and the impact that it had on people making decisions on what they purchase, how they live was extremely substantial. So what about the culture of sustainability? What, what kind of impact could that have? I mean, if you have major, if you have major people involved with uh, supporting this culture of sustainability, then, you know, I think that kind of influenced those value sets of how we uh, interact with nature, how we deal with our cities, how we build things, how we innovate, what kind of companies we want to get involved with, how we want to invest, what, how we want to, what kind of car we want to drive, what kind of house we want to live in. You know, it's just, it really goes down to like uh, th our life choices, and that can have a huge kind of uh, impact on whether we're sustainable or not. Mm. So, I mean, th that's maybe you know at the at the farthest end of uh, uh, how we can have the biggest impact. But I, I do think that's that's possible. Mm -hmm. uh, almost like a, another way to say that might be the the way that uh, the I will I'll do this for Stefan's benefit. I'll use the baseball thing. But a, a way that people talk about climate change and storms is that you can't you know you can't point to a single storm and say that storm uh, was caused by climate change. You can just talk about the frequency. So the example we use sometimes if we want to do an example was you know Babe Ruth. Uh, you hit a certain number of home runs. You couldn't say any single home run was attributed to you know taking drugs or or any performance enhancement he did. But you could say that it sort of affected it over. You you can say for certain that it did affect his ability to do that. And I think that's very much sort of what you're saying with this sort of art was that you don't, you can't say, well, this installation caused that change, but it's all movement and momentum in the right direction. Yeah, and I also think that, like for me, I'm very passionate about art, but I'm also very concerned about the environment. So I just took what I was interested in the most and then added the element of like trying to help out a little bit or make some change. And if everybody does that and everything they do, whether it's their job or their passion or whatever they do, a little bit like if everybody has that bit of an angle. So it's no longer like the specialists, the scientists, or the environmentalists that have to push everything forward. It's like we all are migrating towards a, a, you know, a culture of sustainability. Uh, that's my hopeful message out there. <laughs> well, I think that sounds awesome. I think that's a fabulous place to leave it. I, I, I will ask you if you would please to do some shameless self-promotion. Let people know how they can get in contact you, with you. Uh, if you have any upcoming stuff you want to promote and let them know uh, what the website and all that. Yes, uh, we have a very uh, active website, www.no9.ca. And right now we have an exciting program called the uh, Eco Art Fest going on at Todd Morton Mills. It's a heritage site. We basically transformed it into an art show festival. So you can walk around and look at installations that we've commissioned. And actually you can get like fresh produce there that we're growing on site and uh, organic uh, you know, food and beer. We have a beer garden and we have music every Saturday night. And it's running on until September 11th. It's a really cool way to sort of look at how you can enhance your local green space, which is one of our nine pillars of building sustainable cities. And so I would uh, highly recommend people go down and check that out.
Uh, and of course, if you're those, those were all Toronto centric things you mentioned. But if you're not in Toronto and and uh, uh, maybe you're a teacher, the education program sounded interesting, or or you just like to host uh, Andrew or some of his work, you're you're eagerly accepting yep. offers at the very least. Yeah, we we really want to expand the Imagine My Sustainable City program. We're actually working in Hamilton this year, so uh, we're going to finish Hamilton uh, later on. And probably continue to do some work there, but we. Uh, uh, like all of our other programs, like the Water's Edge and the uh, Imagine My Sustainable City, we like to see these go to other cities as well. Okay. Well, we'll have uh, information on how you can contact Andrew on the show post after the show today. Uh, if for some reason you can't find or anything else, of course, you can just email us at greenmajority.ca. I'd be happy to uh, to uh, send you the links and, and make sure you get in contact with Andrew, especially if there's any teachers out there, because I know that we do have several teachers that listen to this show. So if you're interested, let us know or, or let Andrew know directly. Thank you so much for your time and for joining us today on The Green Majority, Andrew Davis. Thanks for having me, Darren. Loved it. Absolutely. Great. So we're going to go to our music break, and uh, Jason is going to jump on the mic here and tell us what we're going to listen to. Well, I thought uh, I thought I'd play an electronic music song for a change, and uh, so here's an electronic du- an electronic duo from Halifax and their song called "Skinny Thing."
We are back. I'm uh, I'm I'm sort of feeling uh, 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 cleansed a little bit. That was that was very that was a good sign. When you said electronic, I was actually thought maybe we were going to put Dead Mouse or something on, but uh, no, that was good. Thank you, Jason. We'll uh, we'll be back to hear from Jason in a little bit for our second and final music break. Uh, but without further ado, I should remind you if you're just tuning in, of course, that we are listening right now. We're listening. They're listening. They're listening. We're talking. I'm actually, well, we're wearing headphones. We're That's also true. listening uh, to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, your community uh, environment radio program, uh, both in Toronto and across the country through our wonderful syndicates. Um, and in the second half, uh, again, uh, we don't have an, a second guest this week. Um, I've actually been very interested in talking about news. And also, it's the summer. So mm-hmm. we're, just, we're just taking it a little bit more relaxed. Yes. Yeah. Sue us. You can't because we're volunteers. But because of that, that means we're also going to be digging a little bit more into some news today. Uh, so I brought a few things I want to talk about second uh, in the second half. But Stefan Hostetter, my intrepid co-host, is going to take the reins as of now. So go ahead, sir. Uh, thank you. Uh, how are you, everybody? Uh, first, uh, because we as an organization here at the Green Majority really care about facts, uh, I am going to do a quick fact check on the show so far, uh, which is that we have lied at least once, uh, which is that Babe Ruth definitely never took steroids. Um, <laughs> I've used that before, and I think you've corrected me before. I think I have. I, I, when I heard the example that I pulled, hmm. that I borrowed that from, I think they actually used a different baseball player. And I'm just so baseball ignorant that I right. just insert the, the name that I know. So yeah, apologies I, to all our baseball. That's what fans. I figured you had done. Uh, Babe Ruth was in the 1920s. Uh, he hit his home runs off beer and hot dogs. Um, and uh, you so replace the word drugs with hot dogs, and that and exactly. That yeah, you can't say if hot dogs. Can't do- attribute all of his home runs to hot dogs, right. but some of them definitely. Were. Yes, exactly. Uh, you probably think of. Bear Bonds. That, you know what? That um, probably was it. So thank you for continuity. No worries. Uh, important, uh, that's important fact check of the day. You've just increased our, tr- increased our truthiness by <laughs> at least 15%. I'll take it. Uh, but in, in, actually, you know, in, in environment news, rather than just you know, fact checking baseball facts, uh, we, I want to cover uh, t- at least in the, in the first sort of half two, uh, two stories that I think are, are quite linked, which is the first is that uh, quite recently uh, the EU has – an article came out in The Guardian titled EU Calls for Urgency in seriously lagging Paris climate talks. Uh, I sort of feel like you just changed the word Paris uh, to almost every other location of every other climate talk in the last, say, 10, 15 years. Uh, and this would be quite similar headline. Yes. Um, but, uh, but as such, uh, there's only 100 days. We've we got 100 days left. Uh, and this is uh, a quote from uh, Miguel Arias Canate. We'll find out if I said that right. Uh, the EU's climate commissioner. Uh, and basically, he is—he's seen the 85-page draft agreement, and uh, basically, it's not—it's not where it needs to be, where it, to actually get some movement forward. There's too many what ifs. There are too many options. There are too many other things that uh, that need to be n- handled uh, to actually get a good binding agreement in the next hundred days. And so he is—he's uh, basically calling on everyone to step up their game and speed this up. Um, which is interesting. Uh, yeah, again, it, we've heard this every other time. Uh, he gets to say things like, the neg- in the negotiating rooms, progress has been painfully slow, and the window of opportunity is closing fast. Uh, with the ellipses after before it's closing fast. Um, and these are the sort of – these are things we hear every single time before these events. Um, what I think is interesting is that he also notes that the technical talks are lagging behind the political discussion. Which, hmm. I find, which is at least uh, maybe heartening. I don't know. Can you, can you unpack that a little bit? What do you mean, what do you mean by that? Uh, what I mean basically is that I think people are saying a lot of the right things. Uh, mm. But when you actually get down to how we're going to do this, mm-hmm. uh, the, the actual information, what will be in the binding agreement is, is, is well behind. So we're looking at things like 
people can't agree about where the $100 billion uh, sort of uh, mitigation strategy is going to come. Right. And so the, there may be better problems than we used to have despite the problems. Uh, yeah, maybe. And that they're arguing about the correct application of the solution rather than whether or not there should be a solution. That seems to be, yes. We've moved, we've moved slightly forward, uh, to some extent. Of course, the, perhaps the most depressing uh, piece of news out of this article uh, is that uh, the climate pledges have now received by 56 countries. And those 56 countries represent about 61% of global emissions. Um, and but the but uh, these these uh, these intended national determined contributions or national determined contributions INDCs as they're being called because you know the, what is the UN without sixteen thousand ways to um, skin a cat? <laughs> well, I was going to say anagrams <laughs> right now. What's the word for it? When you use a bunch of let numbers to collect for things? Um, the uh, but INDCs is what they're called, right? Acronym. Acronym. There we go. There we go. What is the UN without a bunch of acronyms? Uh, but so the uh, what's great about this is that even these six fifty six countries what represent sixty one percent of the global emissions, uh, even if all of them uh, were done perfectly, uh, they're not seen as enough to chart a course to uh, to actually reheating our two degree global warming. In fact, they basically uh, the, according to the Grantham Research Institute of, on Climate Change, uh, found that the pledges made so far would need to be almost doubled by 2030 to have more than a 50% chance of limiting global warming to 2 degrees Celsius. So let's unpack that for a second. Mm. What that's basically saying is that what is currently pledged needs to be doubled to have a 50% chance <laughs> of hitting a, t- a target, which at this point most scientists think is like maybe 50% chance of actually keeping us from... Yeah, we, we did a story, I think, last week or the week before about how there's even more evidence that of how incredibly arbitrary two degrees is. Exactly, yes. Uh, and so we have basically, we have a we need to double something to get a 50% chance to hit an arbitrary number. Uh, so needless to say... I don't, know, I don't know how to do that math, Stefan, but I'll tell you one thing I do know. I do, I do know that I don't like that math. Yes, it is, it is low. That math doesn't sound good. No, yes. Um, and, so, and so that's, again, this is not necessarily super new news. Uh, it's interesting that you know the EU is saying they're flexible; they will work with whoever they can get. Uh, and but they need better targets, basically. Mm. Uh, what I want to link this to, actually, though, uh, which is I think more interesting, uh, which is another article uh, or another uh, an action that happened out of 350 uh, in uh, in from out of Europe in in the Rhineland, actually, mm-hmm. uh, when 350.org uh, partnered up with a bunch of other organizations and actually made a protest where they broke into a broke into the Europe's largest coal digging plant mm. or coal digging whatever. Um, and what I, A, what's great about this is that the pictures are amazing uh, because things that dig up coal are terrifying. Uh, they're like these massive, massive beasts of machinery and they look there's like a straight out dystopian features mm. and all the people look really small in comparison to them. Um, so the pictures themselves are worth watching, lo- are worth looking at. Uh, but, uh, and they, they successfully stopped some of the largest coal, uh, some of the largest coal diggers. Um, and it, you know, it's, when you read some of the sort of things, you know, cause their, their push, their, their push on this angle, of course, is that you need 300, that, that, most of this organization, most of this has to stay in the ground to to keep up below two degrees Celsius. In fact, the estimates is that eighty nine percent of all European coal needs to remain in the ground, um, which is obviously mass uh, insane percentage given the fact that this is all coal that already known no exists. So, can I jump in there for on on that uh, just really briefly, which is that. <sighs> I, uh, something and, I, and I'm actually part of the reason I'm thinking about this was we're going to have uh, a, 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 an old friend of mine, an old first year university buddy mm. uh, of mine, and uh, and very talented uh, person, um, Liam O'Doherty is going to be joining the show 
in two weeks, he's involved with some, he, he doesn't work, let me be clear, he doesn't work directly for the UN, but he works with some programs with some organizations that are involved in official UN programs. So uh, he's a really interesting guy. He gets to travel the world. He's been on the show uh, dozens of times, not maybe not dozens of times, but maybe a dozen times over the lifespan. He hasn't been on for a really long time. He's going to be coming back in next week because they're they're working on some of these, these UN uh, programs. Uh, but I had a very lengthy conversation with him last night. He's just come back into the city, which is why we were inviting him on the show. Um, and w- one of the conversation that we were having around was that one of the things that this seems to be forcing into the public um, discussion, pu- the public narrative, it, to a level that it's there's always sort of the the radicals, quote unquote, on the on the edges of the political spectrum that want things, but it you know it doesn't really break into mainstream conversation. But we're talking about how it seems to finally be just the edges, and I want to know if you agree with this that just the edges of the conversation uh, are actually breaking into the mainstream because of this climate change conversation, which is that. Uh, just a general understanding at some level, even if people aren't quite putting it into these words, that the idea that the dictating factor as to whether or not we should do things is whether or not it's profitable is just fundamentally flawed. And that this isn't about we need to regulate carbon. This isn't about we need to stop burning coal. It's that the simple idea that the only decision, it's a one checkbox. D- can this be profitable? Okay, then we'll do it until somebody can rein it in later because of by proving harm. Uh, is that, that that model itself is the the cracks are starting to show and that this is a discussion that's been going on forever but that this discussion is ever so slightly starting to actually break into the mainstream discussion do you think that that's true and and if you uh, in either way do you think that that statement is true uh i think i think there's um i think to some extent you have to accept that it's moving a little bit forward uh, at least in some conversations um i'm just actually trying to look up right now to make sure that what i'm about to say is correct um truthiness truthiness exactly uh which is that uh, there was an article that well i think this goes both ways uh there's if this is right which well, i know a a ndp uh, mp uh i'm uh, running for mp i believe it was linda McQuag. i'm trying to figure out if that is exactly yes i think that's almost certainly it was yep Got it. Okay, great. It was Linda McQuake. Uh Came out a couple weeks ago uh, saying that some of the oil sands may need to be left in the ground. I, uh, I read the headline on the on the article that saying politician in trouble for staying saying true thing. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> and so th- th- this is my this is my point. Uh, we're looking at a person who basically. Uh, uh, this is the mainstream. As much as MPs, you know, even uh, you know, as much as uh, as MPs may not count as, I think they are closer to get to mainstream political conversation. If an MP is saying something and it's being reported in the CBC, that's as close as we're going to get to an example of what mainstream conversation is. Except, you know, maybe watching Desperate Housewives, um, <laughs> which definitely has higher viewership than than uh, than uh, the CBC. Uh, but um, presume, but on this front, um, she uh, got some kudos. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, from people who like that's right. Oh, because she still had to qualify it with May, which is again, <laughs> a kind of silly. Um, and but at the same time, got is getting got lambasted. Uh, and what's interesting, a is the I think if it was really getting the mainstream, the conversation, uh, the conversation wouldn't be that she's getting blasted for it. It would be like it would it, it, the conversation would have to move forward. The conversation, like if, I think, when the media decides that the conversation, the, the 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 important conversation is that this might hurt her chances, rather than this is a true thing she said. 
Uh, I think that still means that we're, it's still definitely on the fringes. So but I, the fact that she that, that that an MP can say something that basically is like we cannot use the for-profit motive as the only thing we're paying attention to. Um, again, a lot of people dismiss the NDP as socialists, so who cares? Uh, and so there'd be that conversation already, and I'm sure... Less it, people than used to. Yes, exactly, <laughs> maybe. Um, or at least, I think I think at least it's, it's, it's providing another lens to look at a conversation. Mm. Uh, that instead of, um, instead of just looking at a, a, a bottom-line budgetary issue, you do have these other conversations happening. Uh, mm. And to, to the extent that a, that a prominent MP can say something like that thing that makes us a bunch of money in Alberta may not be able to make us all the money it could theoretically. Well, and I think that's really important because even though it, in this, it sadly was just one MP who was willing to come out and say a single true thing that is that is demonstrable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but politicians are, you know, the, uh, we we talked about this a lot on the program, or, or at least I. This is a, one of my several soapboxes, which is the the idea that the politicians are 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 not. There's a misconception I would think among part of the public that politicians are leaders. They're not. They're followers. Right. They will they will say and stand for things once it's been tested that this is something that people already want and that they will ga- they will gain from uh, supporting it. So I'm going to go back to, and I'm, I'm going to, you're going to have to help me out with the name here. Uh, when we were all the way back at the Beyond Green conference we did, I was uh, filming or I was assisting, uh, I think I was moderating a, mm. a panel with whom from, I think, Greenpeace? Um, I, I, it'll come to you in a minute. Okay. But we'll, you'll remember the story because I know you're in the room too. But he was saying it was a story about, you know, I won't tell you what MP it was, but I went in and I laid out my argument for Keith why Stewart. we should deal with Keith Stewart. Thank you. Was it, that's Greenpeace, right? Uh, yes. Okay. So Keith Stewart from Greenpeace. Uh, and he came out, he's giving this talk at Beyond Greed a few years ago, this conference that we did, uh, or we were involved with a few years ago that you were helping to run at the time. And, uh, and he said, you know, he went into an MP's office and he, and he laid out his case, said, you know, here's the risks, here's the things that we can, we can do, and here's some of the benefits, and, and so what do you think? And the MP, as, he, as Keith told it, um, went, well, this is all very interesting. Thank you. I learned something today. Um, as far as I can tell, you're absolutely right. I think you've made a very strong case. Uh, the problem is I have nothing to gain by doing this. Uh, and the guy wasn't – and the guy or girl, I don't – I actually – we actually don't – I'm not even yes. being coy. We actually don't know which MP this was. Um, but they they weren't being coy and they weren't being disingenuous. They weren't being anything. They were just like literally like I kind of – unless this will gain me support and more than it will lose me support, I actually can't help you. Mm. Um, and that's a, that's a political reality that I think that many people know but it's commonly misunderstood and not enough people sort of realize that politicians do things once you've already – once the people have created space for it and made it known to them that they have something to gain by backing that position. So I, I think in that sense, that's very much what you were saying, which was Linda McQuaig is, was in a, in a sense here more of a barometer of her supporters than it is that you know she suddenly woke up to the realization of climate change and, and suddenly took it upon herself that just now she figured this out and, and decided to, to tell this fact. This was a fact she had in her back pocket that she finally felt like she had the political capital to spend to say a true fact. Mm. And that's both interesting and really messed up. <laughs> yes. Um, what I think goes back to the thing that I wanted to get to actually from the combination of those two stories of the uh, of the EU um, blockade and uh, um, the the blockade on uh, on the coal uh, on the coal from Rhineland um, and and the and the EU coming back and saying that they really wanted something done, which is the question of whether or not blockadia is our only hope. Hmm. Uh, Placadia, of course, uh, I don't think this was coined uh, by uh, by Naomi Klein, but definitely is referenced in in her book. Mm-hmm. Uh, this changes everything, uh, and it's a reference to sort of all of these sort of local groups, all of this sort of work going into right now that is basically standing up to big development, big. Uh, I would, I, what's funny is I want to say big government. 
um, and and in big corporations, uh, mm. which is which is funny to say, given that everyone thinks big government is a lefty thing. But these are a bunch of groups are standing up and saying like, and they're getting cracked down upon hard. Uh, you want an example here? See what has happened in in, in the Unistoten camp, uh, which has been going on for 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 years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the battle between between them and the Canadian government, quite quite honestly, it's it, and uh, there's examples in Greece with with crackdowns and ev- like you're seeing this sort of rise of blockadia everywhere, mm. uh, which in blockadia stands for so these groups that are these small groups of people who are standing up and being like, I'm not going to let you be in my space. Mm. Uh, we're going to fight you in every way we can. We're going to make this as difficult for you as possible. We're not going to let you in here. On the beaches. Um, <laughs> to some extent. Um, and, 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 and it's, 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 it's a growing movement. It's not, it's not a top-down movement. It's not this movement that's coming from, you know, Environmental Defense Fund or anything like that. Uh, this is a movement coming from the people who they are in. Often we, you know, we spend a lot of time criticizing uh, NIMBYs to some extent uh, on the show. And I don't, this isn't directly a NIMBYism movement uh, mm. because it's, uh, it's, not, it's not about anything they're backyard. It's, 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 not, it's not in anyone's backyard. Yes. And I can enforce mine. So Rather than exactly. I don't care where you put it, just don't put it in mind. Exactly, it's uh, exactly it's not a it's not a NIMBY movement to try to fight you know a a, a a set of of windmills in their backyard. Or it's, it's it's NIMBY and don't try my buddy's friend or my buddy's yard either because I'll be there to help. Yes, out exactly. Too, yeah. uh, and it's this movement against uh, these large these large things, and it's 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 growing and it's it's a very bottom up resistance uh, yeah. to the sort of the sort of uh, to which it's getting. It's interesting. It's, it's against. What it gets the combination. What it forces is it forces people to understand the real combination between corporate power and government power. Mm. Uh, in that every time they fight and the government cracks down on them with in the way they are, uh, that's just an example of using police to basically enforce what the corporation wants. Mm. Uh, and it forces this connection that people that that especially the right wing very goes to extents to convince us that is not does not exist. Mm. They you know the right wing wants us to believe that there's the government which is hurting businesses rather than the government, which is working for businesses, <laughs> uh, and be- they they skip even the business part. It's the it's that well, it's they sort of skip the step of well, businesses create jobs, therefore, so you're hurting jobs. They right. skip right to the you're hurting yourself. Right, the only you have you have yourself to blame. Stephen. Yes, exactly. Um, uh, and, and and it's this and it's this uh, it's this, it's this populist uprising to some extent. Uh, yeah. And so I want to I don't know if we want to come back to it or we want to move on. Yeah, I think uh, we, I think we should uh, uh, if you want to wrap up, we'll go, we'll go to our music break and then I think I think we should come back and talk about this okay. more. But, if uh, you just but yeah, so. This, the, 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 well, during the music break, think about this question: uh, whether or not, if we cannot trust uh, even sort of the climate, the summit, uh, this climate summit that's based around everyone's put their hopes on. Uh, this is almost like Copenhagen 2.0, where everyone's like, "If we don't get a deal done here, we have no idea what to do." Mm. Uh, is Blockadia our only hope? All right, that'll be an interesting question, and uh, we might we might dig into that a little bit uh, after the break. You're listening to right now the Green Majority, which is Canada's community environment radio program. Uh, we're broadcast on a number of stations across Canada. You can also listen to us uh, if you happen to be just tuning in randomly on the radio. You can also follow us by following the website as a podcast. Uh, we also uh, we're going to mention quickly on when we come back on the break as well. We just uh, released a, a new climate cartoon, which is a, uh, which is a completely independent project that we're doing, sort of on the side, a YouTube project where we'll dig a little bit into that and how that maybe relates to. Part of this conversation when we come back. But for now, Jason, our tech in the studio is going to tell us what we're listening to next. Okay, we're going to go to uh, another duo, this time some blues artists. Uh, this is Matt Anderson and Mike Stevens' song, uh, The Storm's Rolling In.
breaks again Go the storms as we fade out of that music break and we're back here on the green majority we're into the final 15 minutes here on this week's edition of the green majority radio program your community environment radio program all across the country we're in it we're in a community that is the entire country Stephen. that's a so quite a community yeah I, oh, you know what i should have done i didn't have it this week that would have been the perfect time for me to play my my favorite uh, clip from pale blue dot <laughs> Anyway, you know what? We'll do it next week. It's been more than two months since I've played that right. clip. So you have to play it again. It's a thing. And, yeah. you know, and people don't like it, they can just deal. But it's, <laughs> uh, yeah, Carl Sagan, man. But sorry, without further ado, uh, we have our second fact check. Uh, yes. Non-present, temporarily, not officially a co-host, mm. uh, current Green Party candidate, Kevin Farmer. Mm. Uh, just corrected us. Would you like to do the correction? Uh, yeah. So I said that Linda McQuaig was an MP. Uh, I was wrong. I am sorry, everyone. Uh, Linda, uh, Linda McQuaig is as much an MP as Babe Ruth did steroids, <laughs> um, which is that it might seem like she is because she's a prominent NDP candidate, uh, but has not been elected. There you go. Uh, so in the same way that Babe Ruth did a lot of home runs, so you might think he was, but he also did not do steroids. Yeah. There, there, there's a bit of an offset this week because uh, uh, we, uh, uh, you know, it was a, it's a busy summertime and both of us are really busy, so we didn't prepare as much of a show as we normally mm. did. Uh, we were just talking about, Stephen and I were just talking over the break about how much we're enjoying a sort of more podcasty feel this week, but it also means that we will occasionally need the uh, the odd fact check as mm. we're just sort of shooting from the hip here. Yes. So uh, appreciate it. If you spot any other errors, feel free to tweet <laughs> us and you'll personally increase our truthiness by mm. another 10%. Exactly. Um, 
we're fairly sure that just about everything else we said was accurate. Yes. Uh, well, the other, I'm pretty sure Kevin Farmer would have let us know if we said anything <laughs> yeah, else that wasn't yeah, true. Yeah, we'll let us know the first thing. We'll, know. well, the other part, of course, he included in that in that message was that we uh, that she backpedaled significantly after the comment, which I guess really should prove that as much as one might think we can speak the truth, uh, we still probably can't. Yeah. Which are the, okay. So so I think to wrap that up before you get into your your final thing, then the, which was the the comment that I was going to make at the at the end of that when we were talking about it earlier, which was that it's the the barometer though it, it sort of depends which mainstream conversation you're talking about. When if you're talking about mainstream, like uh, when I was thinking about when I when I asked what I was thinking of was like the type mainstream is in the types of things you're reading in uh, maybe maybe independent but not in a super radical you know media. Um, and also just like people conversations like the buzz of the city, the, the, the feeling on Twitter, that sort of thing. Like just sort of my I, – I guess I was referring in a, in a lot of ways to my sort of just general assessment of the conversation from, from all the various mm-hmm. uh, sources that I pay attention to. Uh, you honed in on a different fact, which of course is, is a – probably technically more technically accurate way to look at it which is what is the media talking about mm. and of course the problem with that and uh, and uh, well, i'm sitting in now for what i'm sure kevin farmer would say in this of course is that the media is to some degree uh to varying degrees depending on your skepticism uh part of the people who are trying to protect this system and so they're they're not to say that any mainstream paper is all lies but mm. there are vested interests and there are people involved with our media system in and some of these interests that need protecting and so frequently the uh, the messaging that you might see on something like the cbc or power and politics is colored by the guests that they choose to have on and those guests are anything but uh um uh, objective in mm-hmm. a lot of cases and so gives them the ability to say well look you know we had three people with three different opinions on but they're all you know corporatists mm-hmm. just from different sort of parts of the uh, parts of the spectrum or whatnot so yeah she was re- she was rebuked by the system if you will mm-hmm. by the mainstream media um but uh, but i don't know i think I, I think in the sense that i originally meant it just to wrap that that up i think what she said did resonate with people uh, and that they noticed even though she was uh, forced or you know, maybe you maybe either forced or didn't have enough backbone to stick up for herself and, and stick by your guns on that. Uh, however, you want to look at it mm-hmm. um, doesn't necessarily impact the 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 people conversation, but right. it, it certainly indicates as to what the mainstream media has to say about mm-hmm. it. Uh, yeah, so uh, to go back to Blockadia for half a second, mm. uh, which will I, which will lead me into the last story I want to talk about today uh, is. That you know, there's. I think it needs to be understood. It, it, activists all over the world understand that there is a. I think there's a. I think it's something, something called like the hierarchy of uh, involvement, or mm. I just, I don't, I don't really know if they hit, oh, they hit their hierarchy. It's like a triangle or a. I remember or that from arrow of involvement yeah. or something like that. There's. A, I, I had my ladder in my class. Yes, anyway. uh, maybe that's what it is. Uh, activists, you can send me. You can do you tweet us. Let us know the exact <laughs> phrase so we can finalize the third most the third <laughs> truth fact of the, uh, the third fact check of the day. It, was, it wasn't um, so much inaccurate. It is unspecific. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> it is some sort of na- thing which, uh, which basically talks about how people can work through getting more and more involved in, mm. uh, in, in different things. And there are some people or many people, I would say a vast majority of people, uh, who will never make it to the sort of – to Blockadia. Uh, many people uh, are not ever going to be the person who's going to climb a fence, run past a police officer, and sit on a gigantic coal digging machine. Mm. Uh, and that is that is just a fact, uh, and that is a commendable fact. Uh, there's not you know there's um, there every, people come in all different ways of, of, of action, uh, and one of them is doing that, and some of them uh, are doing many other things. So I don't think that has anything. To do. But what I, what, I, what I want to get to with that point is so you're not going to get in front of a bulldozer. Uh, what else can you do? 
Uh, and it's great that you, when you get to create your own segue, because uh, guess where? Because I happen to segue perfectly into the next topic. Uh, well which, played, sir. Well thank played. you. Uh, which is Lead Now has released uh, their first uh, big vote together, uh, at least their, their most recent vote together uh, polling of mm. of, conser- of swing ridings. They've identified seventy two ridings. Conservatives won uh, with a sl- with a small my mi- uh, small majority, uh, mm. or with you know uh, which they considered a sort of swing ridings, basically something in play. Yeah, something that's in play. Exactly, uh, and in play in that they won less than you know they didn't win fifty percent of the vote. They won by vote splitting, basically. These are writings that won by vote splitting mm. uh, and so they did they, they ran 13 of maybe the hot, most hotly contested federal writings uh, recently and and it, the polls are interesting mm. um, the first one uh, in these contested writings is that uh, the conservatives out of the 13 only still lead one uh, out of the 13 they're tied with the liberals for two more uh, and then the rest have also changed hands so other 10 right now as this polling states uh five go to the ndp the liberals uh lead three more of them uh and then there's the ties and everything like that uh and so what's interesting about this is that you're looking at um and their their campaign is something i think is super interesting uh mm. and super controversial mm. uh which is that their argument is anyone is better than conservatives uh let us get let us, hashtag #abc yes <laughs> um and and let's vote together that's the 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 their, the title of their campaign um and 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 and, and Basically, in the in the, in the writings where conservatives aren't getting fifty percent of the vote, let's vote together for a more progressive candidate and get them out of there. Mm. Um, and of course, this goes uh, and they, they they attribute it to the our broken first past post system. Mm-hmm. And, uh, lead now basically uh, comes from the place that comes from the place that if sixty percent of the people vote for a progressive, uh, a conservative should not be in power, mm. which I think most people would agree with. Uh, <laughs> Certainly, most progressive. Yes, most progressive, exactly. Uh, but I think there's a very on every election you hear comments about strategic voting, uh, and if it's a good idea, a bad idea. Uh, you know, if you know, and, and I think um, I think the, the the liberals made this way harder by voting for Bill 51 unquestionably. Mm. Uh, in that, a lot of the people are have become one issue voters on Bill 51, mm-hmm. uh, and and so they were never going to vote uh, for the for the NDP or for the liberals. Sorry. Um, but I think another thing that's interesting about this is that even in the writings in which um, a lot of the writings where the liberals were sort of – it was a two-person race, liberals, conservatives, the NDP have a massive surge, which then makes it way more difficult uh, mm-hmm. to, to do any sort of strategic voting if everyone's at 30 percent. Because then which side do you support, of course? Yeah. Uh, and so it will be interesting to see how it goes. Uh, but but I, I'm, I'm, I would encourage everyone to at least check out uh, their, their website, which is votetogether.ca, um, mm-hmm. and, and see if uh, – and, and understand the writing if they're in one of those writings. Uh, and if they all want to get involved, the election um this is maybe the election to get involved in uh and, and lead now is an option uh i feel like we as a as a as a supposedly as a non-political uh, endorsing mm. show we can endorse we can endorse uh getting involved in the election and that's about it and we, this is well, one option I, I think it's fair to say that we can we can endorse considering your options and that yes. there are people that are trying to organize things because of the, w- w- one of the basic factors of that is not just that people hate conservatives it's mm. that the conservative government currently yes is not addressing obvious basic needs at all and it's mm. not a matter of you know political disagreement about tactics mm-hmm. it's i'm going to pretend that these problems don't exist right uh and that is forced that, that's interesting i think that'll be our sort of final comment for the day was that uh for the end of the show here to wrap up was that you know it's really interesting for people including us who are who are uh implicitly and explicitly uh apolitical in the mm-hmm. sense that we don't uh, support or are aren't uh by definition against any political party but when one of the parties has branded themselves as the champions of being against reality <laughs> 
uh, that puts the, a real strain on people's ability to define apolitical because mm. there's just three parties who are proposing various degrees of dealing with a problem. Some of them are significantly more realistic than others, and some of them will significantly uh, deal address the problem more realistic than others. And then there's one that pretends the problem that doesn't exist. And I think that's where we've gotten where we are now, mm. where these I, where I feel comfortable as an apolitical mm. show promoting. <clears throat> A campaign like uh, like the Vote Together uh, initiative because it's about uh, get somebody in office who is actually going to deal with reality. Mm. Uh, and I don't think that's being political. Mm. And, a, and a flashback uh, to if you want to t- talk about how to make uh, the conservatives perhaps more reasonable, uh, check out uh, Green Packs, uh, their campaign. They've actually they are endor- they will be endorsing when they come out at least a few conservatives who they believe have uh, strong green minded uh, minds. So all right, there you go. That's if a, you want so to change together. the conservative party, uh, go with Green Pack. If you want to get them out and save us which, all, which just to be clear for our listeners, the Green Pack isn't about electing conservative no, 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 MPs. No. They're they're just looking at at, at the MP by MP on on. Who and, has the best record? And they're endorsing, yeah, they're endorsing yeah. green MPs within each party. Yeah. So uh, the the very final final that'll be our final sort of food for thought. Also, just take the last minute here to remind folks as well. We just came out with our most recent climate cartoon. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a, just a hair over two minutes this time, uh, talking about the energy grid legacy. So it's really that conversation that we've talked about a lot on the show, which is, <clears throat> you know, why are we investing in pipelines that are fifty year infrastructure when we know that well within fifty years we need to be off the things that they're building to do it? These conversations don't make any sense. Uh, uh, the, the point of the videos, they're very, very short, they're animated, they're friendly, they're accessible. Uh, and it's to, to just really ask these questions, say, what are we doing here? What really is the best strategy based on facts, based on reality and not based on rhetoric mm. in a way that doesn't try and force people, force feed people our solution for it. Of course, Stefan and I have our opinions, mm. but this is really just about what are the things we need to know to have an opinion on this issue uh, and making the case that this issue is worth having an opinion on. Uh, so the final word of the day. Go check out greenmajority.ca and look up some climate cartoons. And you can also check the website for the show information. Subscribe. Follow us. Yay. Look at Instagram for some pictures and stuff. And other than that, we'll see you all real soon. Have a good green week, folks. This has been the Green Majority. Stefan and Darren signing off. Later.